it's kind of a strange illustration, but you know, in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there's this egotistical yeah. character, Sapphire Beeblebrox, and yeah. at some point, I you know I forget which book this is even in, but they're trying to punish him, so they put him in this infinite perspective machine, yeah, which is supposed to drive you crazy with just crushing humility. You know, they put right. you in there, they start where you are, and they back off and show you the entire cosmos, yeah. and you're supposed to come out of that going. Wow, I'm just I'm just nothing. Or yeah, yeah. Um, the problem is so they put Zappa Beeblebrox in this to punish him. The problem is he's in some kind of pocket universe that was sort of like sub-generated in order just to carry out some kind of prank on him. So when he goes into the d- device, he learns that he is in fact the center of the universe, which totally oh. confirms his prior assumption. Right. And he comes out more egotistical than ever. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, very science fiction y. What the heck's a pocket yeah. universe, et cetera, et cetera. Um, something like that can happen if yeah. you get turned around and get a hold of the centrality of God for us in the gospel. Right. Um, so if you come into this from the point of view of, I will now teach you about the triunity of God by teaching you about who God is for us in the gospel, you can have accidentally a Zaphod Beeblebrox moment where you think, God is God for me. Like that's that's what there is of God is it's all centered on me and I'm the center of all things. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host. Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. In the next several episodes, I am inviting some of today's top theologians onto the Credo Podcast to discuss the doctrine of the Trinity. I have just published a new book called Simply Trinity, The Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In this book, I point out that we are experiencing Trinity drift. We have drifted away from the biblical and orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, and my book is meant to help you, help us, recover and retrieve a doctrine of the Trinity that is far more faithful. I invite you to join me in these next episodes as I sit down with these top theologians, and we reflect on the doctrine of the Trinity, not just what we believe, but how it also should affect our worship, our prayer, and so much more. Well, uh, we're getting together today to talk about some uh, some of our favorite stuff, that is Trinitarian theology. And uh, um, I wanted to talk especially about how we come to know the doctrine of the Trinity, that is to say primarily how God reveals it, and then in a way that connects to that, sort of how we come to understand it, uh, sort of process of understanding we go through. And uh, kind of three major areas there. Um, First of all, we come to know the Trinity. I think in in the wisdom of God, it is bundled with the revelation of the gospel. Mm. Um, So that the clearer the gospel is in scripture, the clearer the triune nature of God becomes. Um, Then, of course, I've already mentioned it's in Scripture. So um, whenever you talk about um, coming to know God as Trinity, you have to talk about where in the Bible it is, right? Is it revealed in the Old Testament? Is it revealed in the New Testament? Um, What are the key verses? Things like that. Um, Yeah. We, uh, I I think this topic, Fred, is uh, 
perhaps the, you know, for those watching, it's, it's perhaps the topic that feels closest to our instincts, if I can put it that way. Um, you know, oftentimes, and appropriately so, when we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, we have to talk about some technical terms, and sometimes it can be, it can feel at least a bit um, abstract as we're talking about who God is in of Himself. But um, this topic is 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 a warm one, almost like a warm bath to get into because um, we're talking about well, how how is this Triune God revealed, especially in the Gospel of Jesus Christ? Um, so. I, I, I don't know what your experience has been. My experience has been, especially with like students and churchgoers, that uh, when when you kind of turn this corner to, to talk about, hey, the Triune God actually, you may know more about the Trinity than than you think. Yeah. Um, that you know, perk up a little bit and <laughs> here. Well, I I do know the gospel, so. You got you got my attention. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think that's in in terms of teaching um, to start into it that way. To if you're teaching an audience that already values the gospel and knows that they do, um, then if you can immediately forge that connection between the gospel and the Trinity, uh, and you can begin the process by leading them into it matters because uh, you know it, it goes with. Getting saved in extreme shorthand is, of course, yeah. uh, being adopted by the Father through the work of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's right. of that routine. The, I, I can tell I've succeeded with an audience like that if they don't get to the end and ask, "But why does this matter?" Uh, right. If 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 it, it was already baked in from the beginning, so much of the revelation of the Trinity has this uh, for us aspect yeah. to it. Yeah. Um, that if you can engage that right away. Then, of course, learners are motivated at that point, and they don't get to that, that final point where they say, good, now I've got the doctrine. Now let's move in phase two into application, because right. I find that's where a lot of mistakes get made. Even the fact that phase two yawns in front of you and opens up as the thing that now needs to be filled. Right. That's where people will dump things like, oh, well, um, this matters because I thought of a good analogy for it, or this matters yeah. because it grounds a social program or it connects yeah. to my lived human relational experience with other people. Yeah. And that's where you get all kinds of disasters. Like I will now imitate triune yeah. structures yeah. Uh, that I have just been taught about. I will imitate them in my life. Yeah. So, well, no, we don't, we don't have to, we don't even have to go to the, why does this matter part? Right. If we've baked in the, why does it matter into the, for us character yeah. of this revelation. Yeah. So so really what you're trying to say, Fred, is we have to be kind of like master chefs, baking it in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's already it's already in there. Yeah. It's already in there. Uh just yeah. make sure you're you're putting the ingredients in the right yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right amount. Yeah. Uh, now one one thing having said all that, um I, I should also point out a, a caution here that I think yeah. um this is a note that you've sounded. You do it in, in um chapter four of uh, mm -hmm. Simply Trinity. Um, it's something I cautioned about in Deep Things of God. Uh, and in another way, kind of a wild, highly academic way, um, Catherine Zonderegger is, is very loudly and clearly proclaiming this warning. And the warning is, just because we're approaching the doctrine of the Trinity from the point of view of how this is God for us, that the God who eternally is Father, Son, and Spirit is Father toward us, sent his Son for us, is the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, um, 
you can actually get, I don't want to say too gospel-y about this or, or yeah. too, too application-y. Like, it can be so warm, so immediate, and so focused on human salvation That's that right. it is possible, especially in the modern period, to make the mistake of saying, well, Trinity simply is a teaching about God for us. And so this is the point at which we all have to kind of back up and say, wait, there is such a thing as divine aseity, divine blessedness, um, right. uh, an already complete perfection in mm. the being of God, whether we were saved or not, whether we were created or not, um, to, to have to back up and say, remember, none of this eclipses or collapses God's sovereign freedom and blessedness. Absolutely. 110%. <laughs> I can, and, and so you're right she is making that point very loud and, and for, you know, some people may want be wondering why, why is she making such a big deal about this? You, you hinted at it a minute ago. We are living in the 21st century. So just on the turn of the 21st century, which means that we're coming out of the 20th century in which uh, there's a long, long, long history. Yes, it's diverse, but there's a, I would argue there's a kind of a thread of continuity throughout the last century of conflating, uh, conflating who God is in and of himself as triune with um, the revelation of himself and, and what we perceive in time and space and history. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. One, one way I go, I've gone about this, I'd love to hear, you know, your strategies on this too, is I, I try to be really careful to say to, to folks, uh, on the one hand, yes, and amen, uh, when we come into contact with the gospel of Jesus Christ, our eyes are opened to the beauty of the, and the blessedness of this eternal triune God. But, um, and especially in our 21st century evangelical circles, I think that the tendency is to just assume, oh, whoever this triune God is, he, it's, it's really limited or all there is to know is just um, what he does for me, hmm. right? And sometimes we don't even realize we're doing this. Um, we, you know, this can be a good motivation. We want to know what has this triune God done to redeem me? And that's, that's a wonderful, uh, wonderful truth. But there's also a huge danger there that we can assume then that's all he is. All he is is what he does, his functions, his activities, even his revelation in history. And at that point, we, we have to quickly then qualify and say, tap the brakes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Surprise, surprise. This is the eternal Trinity we are talking about who exists, whether or not you were ever created or saved. <laughs> and that can be, I, I understand that can be a bit jarring at first to hear that because it's, then it's not about me, but I think it's actually quite scriptural to say uh, this, you, you mentioned the saiety, uh, this God is, this triune God is life in and of himself uh, apart from you, which then of course raises all kinds of good, honest, and healthy questions of, oh, okay, well, if that's the case, then perhaps, uh, even though I know something true, perhaps actually uh, 
how this God has revealed himself says something far more about what it means for him to be Trinity and eternity and the imminent life of God um, than I thought. And, and that I, I find then, okay, now we can get into some sometimes technical, but also really important discussions about uh, divine simplicity. What does it mean for this trying God to be one or uh, uh, those processions or eternal relations of origin? What does it mean for the, the son to be eternally begotten? Um, but keeping that, that's my strategy, but keeping that healthy uh, qualification in check is, is just absolutely key. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a, um, it is hard to believe that you could overemphasize the God for us side of things. You know, it's sort of like I, I'm, I'm out there trying to be uh, very biblical and very Christ centered. And then you run into an extreme version of this realize, wow, I would not have thought you could be too Christ centered or too, too emphatic about the gospel's orientation toward us. Um, but apparently you run into someone who's developing this sort of at an academic level with yeah. some tools from Hegel um, or even um, kind of a metaphysical historicism, which would be something like the commitment that the only things that are real are things that become real in time. Yeah. Right. Everything else is yeah. just an abstraction, but real is historically developed. Um, yeah. Well, you, the average the average person outside the academy is not walking around doing historicist, uh, you know, metaphysical historicism in their head. Um, you have to sort of run into this in a fully developed, fully conceptually elaborated form to say, oh, that's not that that's going way too far in that direction. Actually, I think there are things <laughs> there is especially one main thing I want to talk about that is real, that does not come to be real over the course of time. Yeah. That is God. Yeah. And that's also why the, the narrative strategies and the um, the wonderful engaging, we can tell the story of God's mighty actions in history. Very biblical thing to do. Um, I mean, kind of the main business of theology in lots of ways. Unless you think all there is is what you can tell stories about. Uh, yeah. And so God exists insofar as God does mighty acts in history. Then I think, well, no, that's not the case at all. We need to think for a moment on a plane above history. Yeah. Um, and who God yeah. is, you know, uh, you're right. I probably, probably the average pastor, or Nova student or churchgoer, right. They're, they're not picking up Hegel or, or maybe someone like, you know, you talk about his, the ways we tend to historicize the Trinity. Yeah. Uh, they, they may not be picking up say, uh, uh, a Robert Jensen or a Hans Fry or, you know, I could go on. Right. But sometimes it, it kind of slips out uh, in in very subtle ways because we like to talk about the gospel. We like to say we're gospel centered, right? And amen to that, right? We're gospel centered, and and uh, we live we we have this focus on uh, the gospel that's unparalleled. But uh, those assumptions you just mentioned can slip in so that we just think, oh, that we the Trinity is just nothing more than. Uh, what we see in history with the unfolding of the gospel. And if we're not careful, we we might even go so far as, well, we we could, for example, start projecting things in history, maybe in the the incarnation, for example, back on to divinity itself. Uh, Or we we could um, go so far to to start thinking that um, what, 
we see in history actually constitutes the persons of the Trinity, yeah, which could be extremely dangerous, not only putting into jeopardy God's society, but his timeless eternity and so much, so yeah. much more. Now, I, maybe I can throw this back on you, Fred, because I know early on you did uh, quite a bit of work on our Carl Rahner. There's lots of Carls out there, uh, <laughs> but Carl Rahner in particular and his um, his famous uh, saying about the imminent and economic. And, of course, there's lots of discussion over what did he mean, what did he not mean. Um, but even more discussion, perhaps, in the 20th century over uh, how how is that – how is Rahner's rule, mm. we call it that, been kind of – how have people really ran with it and uh, used it in a way that along the lines we've been talking about? Maybe maybe you can share some of your own expertise on this. Yeah, yeah. Well, so this was my, my dissertation in my first book. Um, it came out in 2005, I think, as the image of the imminent trinity. And basically, as a, as a grad student, this was my idea. There's a very important sentence where Carl Rahner said, mid-20th mid century, the economic, sorry, the uh, economic trinity is the imminent trinity and vice versa. Um, and so my big idea was to write a fairly journalistic dissertation, just cataloging what everybody had said mm. about that and what they meant. Yeah. Now that got pretty big because people like Wolfhart Pondenberg, you know, did did a coherent three volume systematic theology with that as kind of the core yeah. uh, uh, element of his doctrine of God. Right. So it wasn't just a series of short reports on who had mentioned this, but you know how it how it grounded a number of pretty vast theological projects. Those one sentences can be deceiving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, I will say that in, in later work, so that book's out there, and it's kind of a it's a careful working through of, of uh, all the ways you can interpret that. You know, you can interpret it loosely, you can interpret it tightly. If you interpret it loosely, you're doing more of a salvation history truly reveals the eternal being of God, sort of a take on it. If you interpret it tightly, it's more like what you said, some kind of God comes to be God in doing these things. You know, there is, there is no God outside of the Father sending the Son. Um, in, in later years, um, I've even sort of stepped back and questioned the whole that whole way of framing it, uh, even to use uh, terribly terrible sounding technical terms like the economic trinity and the imminent trinity. These are obviously not directly given biblical categories or frameworks. Um, they were frameworks invented probably in the 18th century. I've kind of done some detailed archival work on where this stuff came from. You can hear it when you say the economic trinity is related in the following way to the imminent trinity. However you say they're related, and that's worth working out, that whole way of standing back from all the data of biblical theological revelation and saying, on the one hand, we have the Father sending the Son and the Father and the Son sending the Spirit. Let's call that the economic trinity, the oikonomia, the history of salvation. Um, and then there's God in himself, God, you know, action remaining within the agent, imminent trinitarian. And then it makes it sound like you've got two trinities, you know, let us now relate this trinity to that trinity. Yeah. Like in the sentence, you have two trinities. Yeah. I don't think anyone who's ever used it actually thinks there are two trinities, right. but they've right. generated a framework in which you have to constantly talk about these two uh, different clusters of data. Yeah. Um, I've decided when I can, I just won't even teach it that way. Like I'm not even going to try to, 
come up with the right answer for how to relate economic and eminent trinity. I would like to go back to an older pre-18th century way of doing this and talk about missions and processions. Mm -hmm. Missions, processions, you know, that the father sends the son in salvation history because from all eternity, the son is from the father in the very being of God. That is compatible with talking about economic eminent trinity, but you're really switching frameworks and one of the things I found out, and I wrote about this in my my book, The Triune God, uh, was Zondervan. Actually, the economic trinity, eminent trinity way of talking was invented in the 18th century to avoid talking about missions and processions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was actually an end run around having to say there's an eternal generation in yeah. the being of God. Yeah. So you can use it for good ends, and there are some good Catholic theologians especially who say these ways of talking are compatible um, I, that's probably true, but when I can, I just avoid economic eminent language. Yeah, I I really sympathize with you, Fred, on that point. Um, when I, in my book, simply Trinity, it's almost one of those categories that you just have to address eminent economic, and I almost did so uh, with with hesitancy for that very reason uh, because I I thought. Uh, as soon as I say these words, I know that um, there's that tendency to just think of it in that that framework, and there can be certain you know pitfalls. But um, one of the things I tried to do was say, uh, okay, this is a language that you know whether we like it or not, we've got to address. It's it's been the language of the last century or two, and and so let's. Let's talk about it and what's the distinction, all that sort of thing. But, but uh, like you said, I, I quickly then said, well, actually, could there be some better language? <laughs> yeah. uh, how about processions and missions or relations and missions? Um, this seems some, – some older theologians even talked about just using the word theology mm. to describe what we're, we're saying as, uh, the, you know, this – you know, imminent or uh, God in and of himself, and then turn to, you know, something like missions or economy to then talk about, okay, what does this God do for you? Um, I, yeah, I agree. I I think it's, we're almost in this (laughs) impossible situation in which the language is there that Rahner used. And so it's like, well, what is, what do we want this to mean? And what do we, what should we not mean by it? But then it just kind of throws us back one and to say, well, maybe we should, if we can, use the older language because it maybe it avoids some of these dangers of historicizing God, for example, yeah. uh, that we keep bumping into uh, almost every decade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is, yeah, so I mean, one thing you mentioned, if you're dealing with students who are going to read any 20th century theology, yeah. you've simply got to equip them with an understanding of economic eminent. Like, yeah. you can't bypass the terminology. It's, I know. You'll shut them out of all the books. Right? <laughs> um, yeah, the other thing is, it is useful if you want to do the very abstract thing of sort of bundling the identity of God and all that he does as Father, Son, and Spirit in the history of salvation and then think of that whole complex in relation to mm. the identity of God as God eternally exists, whether there had been an economy of salvation or not. Right. So it is a, it is kind of a, I don't know, a 40,000 foot overview kind of a conceptual yeah. schema. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, that, that's an excellent point because, you know, some may be 
listening to us and and uh, and then go pick up a bunch of books on the Trinity and think, I don't even know how to you know if I just <laughs> stick with the other language, I don't even know what they're talking about. Yeah. So that's a that's a great you know a great point in terms of the literature itself. One one other thing I'll mention um, is because you use the word biblical mm. um, and. As theologians, we we need a vocabulary, a Trinitarian vocabulary, right? To for all kinds of reasons. One of them to safeguard us uh, from a doctrine of the Trinity that could be compromised by uh, whether it's a manipulation or or something a bit more subtle in which we might assume um, a, a historicizing of God. Whatever it is. We need a doctrine of Trinity that that has this type of vocabulary, like processions and missions. Mm. I I don't know about you. Some sometimes I get um, the reaction from uh, from folks that, well, uh, none of this is biblical, and uh, I'm just going to stick with you know the words of Scripture. I'm just going to stick with Scripture says. Now I'd love to hear how you respond to that. One thing, one another strategy I've used, and um, sometimes it's helpful, is I love to to, to say to, to those individuals, yes, the storyline of Scripture, on the one hand, certainly focuses a large portion of its attention on the narrative, mm-hmm. right, and on the gospel, and there's good reasons for that. However, even the biblical authors themselves, if you, if you pay attention closely to those unique moments when they start to have, sometimes it's doxological even, start to have uh, theological reflections on who God is. It could be in the Psalms. It could be in the Gospels. Um, when, the, when those times come, what do you do? Because at, at that point, the biblical authors themselves seem to think who this God is, is way beyond uh, whatever, you know, he's doing just for me at this point in time mm-hmm. and uh, brings them into the categories like mystery. I think, for example, of John's gospel, which is a little bit different from the other gospels. We, we tend to, ha- you know, in the 21st century, we, we can be tempted to have this, this allergy almost to, uh, the eternal, imminent life of God in and of himself. And, and so one thing I like to say to, to people is, does John, does John have that same kind of reaction against these deeper things of God, you know, to, to kind of play off of the, the title of your book? Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem so. Actually, John will get to the gospel. You think of John 1, verses 14, and following, for example, but before he does so, he wants to take us into eternity even to talk about, well, who is this God in and of himself? And I think John John is convinced that actually is a foundation to lay so that we can properly talk about the gospel. Mm-hmm. What what maybe you have a different strategy? No, I, I think I think that's right. I mean, there's got to be a way to um, uh, sort of summon to your mind the the uh, just the godness of God. Yeah, <laughs> right? uh, you can sort of leave that part quiet 
and then dive right into the story of God being a character in our story with us um, and miss the notes in the Bible uh, where the Bible itself, you know, Exodus, Psalms, John's Gospel, Job, repeatedly throughout the Bible, um, we're sort of pushed up to this other level where we have to recognize, yes, God is truly entering into this story as a character in the story, right? It's once upon a time, God said this, and then a human said this back to him, and then God responded this way. Yep, that is a true story. And the character God in that story is coming in from a higher plane where he's not simply one of the characters in the story like the other characters in the story. He doesn't become who he is through what happens to him in that story. All the other characters do. Right. It it is, I mean, this could be a maturity issue, I think, though I I even think baby Christians, this this is fundamental to spiritual insight. Hmm. If, If you come to knowledge of God somewhere in there latently waiting to find expression is an acknowledgement of the godness of God, yeah. right? You, you don't actually have a fully diminished notion of divine being, or you don't know God. <laughs> but it could be a maturity thing. It's it's a big moment to realize I'm in a story, God's in the story with me, and I and God's story is more important than mine. It, it is sort of the next step. You have to digest that a little bit, grow a little bit in your understanding of who God is showing himself to be in Scripture, to be able to say, Oh, and God is bigger than the story. God is m- more <laughs> than than the character that shows up in this story. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, you're using the word There's, story. I mean, kind of comes thinking about. Over, oh, no. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, it kind of comes back to this question of: Can you over? Uh, over gospel something or um, can you, can you make it too much about us? There's a, it's kind of a strange illustration, but you know, in the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy, there's this egotistical yeah. character, Saffod Beeblebrox. And yeah. at some point I, you know, I forget which book this is even in, but they're trying to punish him. So they put him in this infinite perspective machine, yeah. which is supposed to drive you crazy with just crushing humility. You know, they put right. you in there, they start where you are and they back off and show you the entire cosmos. And yeah. you're supposed to come out of that going, wow, I'm just, I'm just nothing. Or, you yeah. know, um, the problem is, so they put Zaphod Beeblebrox in this to punish him. The problem is he's in some kind of pocket universe that was sort of like sub-generated in order just to carry out some kind of prank on him. So when he goes into the d- device, he learns that he is in fact the center of the universe, which totally <laughs> confirms his prior assumption. Right. And he comes out more egotistical than ever. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, very science fiction what the heck's a pocket yeah. universe, et cetera, et cetera. Um, something like that can happen yeah. if you get turned around and get a hold of the centrality of God for us in the gospel. Right. Um, so if you come into this from the point of view of, I will now teach you about the triunity of God by teaching you about who God is for us in the gospel. You can have accidentally a Zaphod Beeblebrock's moment where you think, God is God for me. Like that's that's what there is of God is it's all centered on me and I'm the center of all things. Twisted. <laughs> yeah, that's where we have to say. Oh, I'm sorry. You're kind of in a pocket universe right now. Yeah. Where I was in fact describing the gospel, and in that sense, I could see where you would think you are at the center of it. But you really need this moment where you come out into the real world under the real God and recognize, oh, God's not a little bigger than me. God's story isn't some more important than mine. It is. Yeah. Incur- incommensurably, infinitely greater um, than the story that I'm living. Yeah. 
I can I I do Fred how you just put it is is goodness I don't I don't think I can improve on that. It, it's funny that you just mentioned the hitchhike the the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy. Uh-huh. Um because at the beginning of Hitchhiker's Guide, uh, there's this, like you're talking about, almost this like uh, m- uh, me moment, me moment, <laughs> where um, his house is he's trying he's like the only one left I think trying to save his house from being demolished. Do you remember that? Yeah, like, yeah, the, the beginning, the very beginning. Seen Arthur Dent with his, his getting up in the morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the very beginning. And he's like, this is his whole world. You know, it's like his, they are trying to take down his house. You know, it's probably some massive CEO, you know, construction company, that sort of thing. And, and then uh, he, I think they go to like a bar down the road. He, he's, he's finally convinced they the hold off on it, which was probably foolish, but the hold off on it, time out. He's going to go have this conversation with this, you know, it turns out to be this person from another planet, literally. <laughs> and, uh, as he starts to have that conversation, it's almost like two people who can't—they can't talk to each other. They're, they're talking past each other, right? Because on the one hand, he's trying to convince Arthur Dent, "I know that like you think this is all about you right now, but your entire planet—not just your house, <laughs> your entire planet's about to be destroyed in oh, I don't know, a couple minutes." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it's really hard for him at that moment to think this isn't all about me and what I'm, you mean not just my house, but all of planet earth. And sure enough, you know, all planet earth is destroyed and he's saved and then begins the story. But I I was just reading that over Christmas. And, and you know, now that you mention it, uh, it is a really appropriate um, allegory perhaps for. (laughs) I think that's right. I mean, obviously Douglas Adams was some kind of atheist in a pretty yeah, hardcore yeah, sort yeah. of a way, but but one of the things he's really great at is um, getting you out of yourself and into the cosmos, even that's though it's perfect. a goofy cosmos and he's kind of joking about a lot of it. What he's serious about is the universe is way bigger it, it, than yeah. the little things you let yourself get wrapped up in. And we basically have to say something similar when, way more than that, really, when we're talking about the triune God himself, because uh, it's it's not just oh, he's bigger than you. He's, he's, a, he's not even like you. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's not like, oh, he's in a, another universe. Uh, here we're talking about um, the God who is triune in and of himself, uh, timelessly, yeah. before the foundation yeah. of any universe. It, yeah. it, it makes me uh, wonder, you know, uh, when we talk about history – I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, how should we really carefully talk about how the Trinity is revealed, not just at one point, but across the whole canon? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I've thought about this for a long time, and I know you've reflected on canonical revelation as well. Um, I think to be honest to all the evidence, uh, the best thing to do is to say that the tri- God is always triune, um, but did not make that clearly known until the revelation and the sending of the Son and the Spirit. Um, now, that means that the revelation of the Trinity has the structure of what the Bible calls mystery. Mm-hmm. The Bible uses the word mystery in a special sense, right, to mean something that was always true but was not made known for a long time but now has been made known. 
right? Yeah. Um, it's a it's a New Testament. I mean, it's in Daniel too, but it really gets developed in um, the New Testament uh, way of talking about. Oh, if it turns out God had a son, that must always have been true and just not revealed until God sent the son. Yeah. So the doctrine of the Trinity has that mystery structure. So I save the word revelation for the actual coming of the son and the spirit. Okay. When I talk about the revelation of the Trinity, I mean, it is really unveiled when yeah. the personal presence of the son and the personal presence of the spirit happens in history. And then I use this word, which is it's in all the books. You read any book um, about the Trinity, it's going to use this word adumbrate, which is a cool word. You know, it means to shadow forth, ad umbra, from the Latin. Um, but nobody uses the word um, except, you know, I mean, except in books about the Trinity. They'll say, ah, oh, yes, the Trinity is adumbrated in the Old Testament. <laughs> so I've just decided to kind of lean on that and say, let's say it's adumbrated rather than clearly revealed. Uh, and then it's clearly revealed in the coming of the Son and the Spirit. Yeah. And then the documents of the New Testament, the inspired documents of the New Testament, bear witness to that revelation mm. of the Son and the Spirit being actually there. Now, then it is important to go back and say, let's talk about those adumbrations and shadows. Yeah. Um, like, what, <laughs> what, what can I see in Genesis if right. I haven't – do I have to pretend I haven't read all the way through to Revelation yet? Yeah. Um, or can I pick up Genesis and say, I am now rereading it mm. in light of having read the entire book? Right, right. Um, and obviously, I think, whether they know it or not, that's what Christians are doing yeah. when they spot the Trinity in the Old Testament and develop it with clear Trinitarian statements. Yeah. What they're doing is, and I think this is legitimate, they are reading the meaning of the whole book back into the early chapters. But in a linear fashion, the things they're going to say have not yet been stated. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel comfortable still with an uh warfield you know his illustration of a uh, walking into a room that's the lights are off or maybe it's just dim yeah yeah the with the the old testament is a chamber richly furnished but dimly lit warfield says yeah 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 i think that's right because the furniture i think you do this in chapter four of your book right the furniture's there yeah. Um, when the lights come on that adds no furniture to the room right but it adds a lot of furniture to your understanding Right. You now see it all. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, and, and just piggyback off of what you said there, um, when you use the word Christian, which I, I really like to use when we're talking about hermeneutics to say, what does it mean? What does it look like to read the Bible as a Christian? Mm-hmm. Maybe another way, like you said, is to read it as a whole book. Um, of course, if we talk about this in a in a theological way we might say what does it mean to read the bible as a trinitarian and that certainly adds a whole new angle to our reading of the canon hmm. i mean just to give one example um well, you know, there's so many but when we come to the new testament um it's not as if the new testament authors whether it's the gospel writers Hebrew author of Hebrews or Paul, whoever it is, um, it's not as if they are desperately trying to figure out a way to somehow uh, fit this I, this concept of Trinity um, into their their understanding of of the canon uh, or 
in light of the coming of Christ. Actually, it's almost as if the awkwardness that they initially felt, it dissipates. And, and suddenly their eyes are open with this crazy energy, excitement almost, if we could put it that way. I mean, you think of like Hebrews, for example, and the way that Hebrews begins and start, goes, starts going to the Psalms to talk about Jesus. And uh, you start to, to, to pick up on, on things that were in the Psalms all along, but now, in, like you said, in light of the revelation of Christ, um, sure make a whole lot more sense. Uh, you know, and there's, there's been a lot of really good academic discussions of this. I, I think, for example, of, you know, uh, Matthew Bates' book, The Birth of the Trinity, where he, he does some careful exe, exegetical work uh, to, to look at some of those Psalms and say, what are there, is there an actual conversation taking place here? And it seems like perhaps it's not just in history, but this is, this predates history altogether. It seems to transcend it. Yeah. And I would argue, yeah, I think that when you come to like Hebrews was an example, you come to Hebrews, there seems to be something said in that direction that, Hey, these are, uh, this is the one God still, yeah, but this one God is father, son, and spirit. And they're, you are being invited almost to to kind of eavesdrop on their Trinitarian conversation of not only about who they are, but then what they're going to accomplish in salvation history. Which is of course finding a, it's a biblical doctrine of the Trinity. um, But it's not, you're not finding verses that teach the Trinity. Right. What you're finding is, uh, the way the Old Testament is given to us, like it's actually how the how the words go, the way it's yeah. given to us yeah. presupposes Trinity in a way that's made explicit in the New Testament. Yeah, you mentioned Hebrews. I would also point to Madison Pierce's book on divine discourse in Hebrews. Which, yeah, it just um, came out. Yeah, very close. Uh, yeah, Cambridge Press, I think. Um, very close attention to the actual way the words go, and in particular the uniqueness of the spirit's speech mm. and how that kind of ties up the. The That's Trinitarian right. bundle. That's right. So some good work being done. Um, now, but it is—it's so different from finding a verse about the Trinity in the Old Testament. Yeah. That's what I wanted to mention next. Maybe uh, I know our time's limited, but uh, we can sneak that in because, <laughs> I, yeah, maybe I'm all alone on this. I, my suspicion is I'm not, but in in uh, our circles. That is the tendency, I think, is in the past, and, and it's not just in like biblical studies, um, it's even in systematics, the, the tendency is to say, okay, we're going to formulate our doctrine of the Trinity, what are my Bible verses? And uh, on the one hand, I, I think that we, we all agree, yes, Scripture is our final uh, authority, and we look to it as a as a, as our source for understand our understanding and revelation, of course. Uh, but that doesn't mean we necessarily all approach it the same way. Yeah. Uh, I've used the term in, in my book, simply Trinity. I use the term biblicist, and and I explain what I mean by that. And, but I use it in a negative sense. Is mm. I talk about a, kind of a narrow. Biblicism, so the ism there might be more appropriate to, to talk about. Well, when we discuss the Trinity, 
this this just doesn't work. This type of biblicism, it actually can, and it has uh, gotten us in all kinds of trouble where we, if we don't see in a specific verse uh, a doctrine like eternal generation or, or just uh, it, that, it could be any number of, of Trinitarian concepts, we either dispense with it or we are suspicious of it until we can be maybe convinced by, you know, a word study otherwise. I think we, you and I probably agree that there's actually, in terms of hermeneutics, there, there may be a better way to read the Trinity off the pages of scripture. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. And um, so obviously there's a healthy instinct here to want to see things plainly in scripture. Right. Um, so you want to applaud that and you don't want to talk anyone out of that because that's yeah. not wrong. <laughs> um, uh, but there are some doctrines uh, about God and Christ, things that we know are true um, or doctrines about theological anthropology too. There are some, particularly broad and subtle truths made known in scripture that just are not made known in verse sized bits. Yeah. You know, they're more like, can you say something about what we know about God because of the flow and structure of the book of Job? If there's something truly cognitively stated and revealed in the structure of the book that is not stated in any particular verse, right? Or is that not admissible because it didn't boil down to sentences at any point? Like, well, no, I think, uh, you know, a sophisticated reading of any literature is going to make you say there are some things made known here in the presuppositions of why these words are on the page um, and where they go and how they connect to other words, you know, on other pages. Um, There are truths, really propositionally statable truths derived from those things, which are not themselves stated in propositions in scripture. So the give me a verse thing is going to come up short on some doctrines on, on, on a whole lot of doctrines. Give me a verse works fine, right? There, there are certain things that God is intent on saying in precise short sentences in scripture. Uh, No problem there. It is, it's telling that evangelicals, conservative evangelicals have dropped the ball on a number of elements of the doctrine of God in, in recent decades. Um, because they're overworking a verse by verse uh, kind of a, a way of handling things yeah. that isn't equally satisfactory for all doctrines. Mm-hmm. And I say this as someone who's completely sola scriptura. My doctrine of the Trinity is from scripture, right? I've had a lot of help from the church fathers and the reformers. Yeah. Um, but at no point am I bringing in truth claims from outside of scripture in, in yeah. making these claims yeah. on a usage note. Um, I mean, I'm a little older, and I continue. It seems to me that the word biblicism was a good word or a merely descriptive word uh, for evangelicals. If you think about the historical historiography of someone like David Bebbington, when he said, there are four things that characterize evangelicalism. One is biblicism. That wasn't an insult. It wasn't exactly praise. It was just a descriptive category. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that that word semantically that word has shifted mm. in usage mm. so that it is more often used as a negative word. Yeah. I tend not to do that partly because I've got holdover from the books I read that use it in another sense yeah. just a few decades ago. Yeah. And um, also because I do want some word to describe how I'm a Bible person. Yeah. Right. And I, I reserve the right to be sophisticated in how I get my doctrines <laughs> from scripture, but yeah. it, it's the B I B L E for me. And so I'm not sure where to go. 
I noticed that in your usage, you always give it a um, sort of a, a an adjective. You, you, you give it a modifier, yeah, to make it clear that it's a narrow biblicism. Yeah, and and like you said, even at the beginning of, of simply Trinity, I, I I actually reference. I don't remember if I actually say Bevington. It might be in a an endnote somewhere, but I reference that those four characteristics and uh, biblicism being one of them. And so, yeah, when I, when I do then go to, to say, well, what kind of biblicism are we talking about in recent years when, when we're bringing in the doctrine of the Trinity? Yeah. It's a, it it can be crude or narrow or, or just not one other way I, I like to describe it is it's not, very organic. And, and by, by that, I don't mean, you know, our eating habits. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm referring to kind of the discussion we just had is, you know, how is the Trinity revealed canonically? Yeah. Uh, not by, uh, you know, going to a specific verse or that sort of thing. Sometimes I've, I've with all the baggage, I, I've tended to avoid the word biblicism. Sometimes I'll use a word like uh, scriptural. Mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, no words without baggage, but sometimes that helps to say, oh, okay, we're, we are going to the revelation of God, um, but we want to avoid a certain hermeneutic assumptions, really, yeah. about how we approach it. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would probably add one thing um, that you kind of triggered in, in, my, in my mind, and that is when we talk about you know, how we approach the text. It's not, it's not as though, okay, the Trinity is less important or less clear because uh, God chose not to give us a proposition, right? There, you yeah. don't open your Bible and there's some formula there and, oh, there's our Trinity. Um, as opposed to, you know, you go to Paul and because of his context, well, he's just going to come out and say, this is... Uh, He's going to exclude works from justification. Well, he's very forthright in doing that. I would say to, to, to people out there, it's, let's not assume, oh, that then means uh, we're speculating in a bad sense about the, the Nicene Doctrine of the Trinity, mm-hmm. um, and we should just stick to you know, those things that are clear uh, that God chose to give us in a propositional form. Uh, I guess what I would want to say is, no, let's not make that assumption. Instead, actually, there's there's somewhat of a mosaic a diversity. It is beautiful, a, a beautiful diversity of ways that God chooses to reveal himself in all kinds of doctrines. It's not even the doctrine of the Trinity. It's a whole number of doctrines that, uh, well, as the Westminster Confession says, we, we sometimes you know, know in a very direct sense, and other times uh, it's more by theological and logical consequence. Yeah, yeah, good and necessary consequence, yeah. Good and necessary consequence. Yeah, but yeah. maybe we need to emphasize the word good a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, this is this is a, um, there's one of the beautiful things about the way the doctrine of the Trinity is made known by God in Scripture. Yeah. Um, you can hit the, the verse at the end of Matthew, you can hit Matthew 28, 19 and 20, and say, um, okay, well, the name, the one name of God, includes the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That's good enough for me. I can, you know. Um, but you can also realize, if, an, if a non-Trinitarian comes to that verse and says, I don't see that teaching the Trinity, you say, oh, I, 
okay, I can see how you could miss that um, because the power that it has here is as the last verse in the book, yeah. you know, which starts with call his name, Jesus, God with us. Like it's leveraging all these presuppositions more right. or less articulated elsewhere in scripture. And of right. course it's Matthew, which is intentionally designed to explain the, the uh, new covenant realities in light of the old covenant with the footnotes and everything, right. Constantly telling you this was done to fulfill. So when you get to that one verse at the end of Matthew, it's leveraging all God's works and ways as they reach their consummation in this revelation of God's identity. That's right. Um, Well, you can understand how someone being very narrow about like, I don't see it in this verse, (laughs) you know, can you prove it to me? There's that Um, narrow. (laughs) You can meet, you can meet that narrow anti-Trinitarian with some narrow Trinitarianism. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And sometimes you got to do verse to verse combat with people where you meet them on the ground where their presuppositions get them to. But the actual mode of Christian understanding unfolding is going to be um, this this passage at the end of Matthew as the consummation uh, and conclusion of a just a, a world of presuppositions elsewhere made evident. Right, right. Yeah, it. I I, I sometimes uh, find it a bit ironic that when the Mormon or the Jehovah Witness knocks on our door. <laughs> and uh, oftentimes if say Christ comes up or maybe the Trinity, um, they want to go to that text by text. Like, well, this first disproves, you know, the Trinity for these reasons. And um, well, there's two, there's two things you could do. It might be worth. So, yeah. It might taking some time and actually evaluating that verse. But in my experience, they are usually not going to, they're so convinced by a particular reading of a particular verse that it's, it doesn't always work. Oftentimes it's more effective to to say, let's look at the big picture, Mm -hmm. not maybe in that particular book of the Bible, but, but the whole Bible, what, what is being revealed to us is it's not what you think. I, sometimes it's a bit ironic here, and maybe I'm stepping on some toes, but um, and I'm I'm guilty of this as well. So um, we can sometimes approach our doctrine of the Trinity or formulate our doctrine of the Trinity in similar ways, hmm. and we we don't always realize we're doing that. But it's a bit of a piecemeal type approach that. Um, it, well, it can feel very foreign to the way we see the triune God revealed in Scripture, as well as the way that the triune God has saved us. Um, and so all that to say, it, I, I guess I, my encouragement would be uh, let's let's take a bit of a more organic approach rather than falling into that trap. Not that we don't take those scriptural texts seriously, but actually the Trinity is a different type of doctrine uh, that, that we have to come to a bit more holistically. Yeah. Yeah. And I think organic is a helpful word. Um, think about some of the biblical theology movement participants, like especially Voss, um, Gerhardus Voss, will use that word organic, talk about the, the organicity, the organism of scripture. Yeah. It's kind of a motif that yeah. shows up in Bob Inc., but it's helpful to see it in a, you know, the author of biblical theology. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that that, that um, even even given the 
tools and restrictions that he is intentionally following out in that project. Um, It's, it's through this uh, perception of the organic interconnectedness. He even says that scriptures, I don't think he uses the phrase canon consciousness, but, but he does talk about how it's, it's aware of its own, uh, you know, organic character and alludes to it increasingly as it goes along. May, May it be on record that two systematic theologians did talk about, Biblical theology <laughs> in the discussion on truth. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I like Bible verses and I like narrative, and and those are all components of no. No. Uh, a complete doctrine of the Trinity. But you do you do end up. This is one of the doctrines that really necessarily pushes you into some kind of metaphysical register. Yes, to adequately confess the godness of God. Yeah, and we shouldn't be afraid of that. That that okay. I know that that can be a. Uh, a bad word in some people's opinion, you know, oh no, metaphysics. Uh, like we were talking about earlier, no, it's a good thing. It's actually yeah. a really good thing. And believe it or not, we are all reading scripture through a certain metaphysic, whether we realize it or not. Yeah. Uh, it's just a matter of uh, whether it's it's going to be consistent in the end. Yeah. All right. Great talking with you, Fred. Yeah, good talking oh, with you. Before before we sign off, um, I do want you know we've been talking about my book uh, simply Trinity, but mm-hmm. I I do want those out there to make sure uh, in the months ahead, Fred has a book coming out. I think I'm right in calling it the Fountain of Life. Um, yeah, Fountain of Salvation. The Fountain of Salvation. Sorry. Yeah, and uh, it's. Uh, a book yeah. that is going to focus on not just the Trinity, but the Trinity and the doctrine of salvation. Is that right, Fred? Yep. yep. Yeah. So it's um, 10 chapters uh, on kind of working that theme of how, how the doctrine of God, and the doctrine of salvation uh, yeah. interpenetrate and mutually inform each other. Yeah. Fred, if or, uh, sorry. If you're not, if you're not careful here, uh, you're going to start encouraging more and more of us to start writing, writing on the Trinity. Maybe that was your strategy all along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's there, there's a lot of good stuff out now. Yeah, yeah, it's encouraging to see. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcast to join the conversation. A conversation where doctrine matters.